electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And we have yet another day of banking concerns dragging down the market. Credit Suisse appears to be the latest on the brink as its biggest backer, the Saudi National Bank, says it won't provide any more capital. We're just off session lows for the Dow. That was about minus 720 just a moment ago. It's a 2% drop. Investors here are mainly hoping U.S. financials aren't exposed to any counterparty risks there. Uh, the Dow was lower by about 2% today. The S&P down 2%. Watch this level. I believe 38. Dom can correct me if I'm wrong. 39 was about the level we started the year, so we're four points away from that. The Nasdaq similarly down about 1.4 percent today, slightly outperforming. European markets just closed half an hour ago with major losses, as you might imagine. Take a look at Germany's DAX, kind of the benchmark, down more than 3 percent. Interesting to see Austria really underperforming with a 6 percent drop. Pressure across the board for the Swiss headquartered Credit Suisse Bank. Now, a 9 percent drop for European financials this week. Worst week since uh, June of 2020. And the European Central Bank is due out with its latest rate decision in the morning. Are they really going to hike by half a point? We'll kick that around with the panel in just a moment. Here you can see the pressure across the European banks. And here in the U.S., banks are back in the red with the iShares Regional Bank ETF down another almost 4% right now. First Republic back to 30. It was up in the 40s yesterday, 23% drop. Fifth third down 5% Huntington Bank. You can see the declines there. And it's not just banks. We should absolutely highlight this point right now. This is not just the banks. Uh, energy and commodities are really getting hit hard today as well. Look at this. We just cracked below $66 on WTI crude, a 7% drop. You tend to see sharp moves like this once we blow out of trading positions. Nobody was expecting uh, such a precipitous decline in oil prices here. So that's blowing up some positioning. Brent crude down 7%. Dr. Copper down almost 4% today and on the verge of going negative for the year. Going the opposite way is gold. It's up 1.5% as investors are kind of seeking these more safe haven trades. Gold's having its best week since November. Obviously, bond yields are lower again today as well, but this drop in the 10-year and so many of the yields uh, two-year, they're all so striking. Uh, Here's the two-year yield, 380, down about a point more even uh, since last Wednesday. I believe last Wednesday was when we cracked above 5% on this yield, believe it or not. Uh, Let's kick things off with Rick Santelli with the very latest on all of these moves down at the CME. Rick? Yes, you borrowed my first chart. One week of two-year note yields. It's hard not to look at that chart. It's down over 40 basis points. And to think, just one week ago today, it closed at 5.07. And to think it closed at 4.43 at the end of last year, and we're currently at 3.84. That pretty much puts everything in perspective. And if we want to look at something different, now, that was two-year note yields. Let's look at two-year note futures, a price contract. And on top of that, let's put another price contract, these Fed fund futures. Because on this chart, I would really like the viewers to understand that as important as it is to try to decipher the magic of Fed fund futures, it's basically just another short-term debt instrument. Look at the way it looks on that chart. Now, let's switch gears. Let's keep Fed fund futures as a 
price and let's overlay that with one month T-bills, which are down about the same amount in yield. And you can see how they're inversely correlated precisely. Now, when we talk about Europe and ECB tomorrow, it's going to be one interesting morning. I know you're going to be discussing that, Kelly. I don't think Christine Lagarde and committee are going to raise rates at all, in my opinion, but we will have to wait and see. But there's some very telling markets. If you look at the shots versus the boon, so the two-year in Europe versus the 10-year, it closed at the least inverted of the year. Now, if you go back just a couple of trading sessions, literally, it was at the most inverted since the early 90s. To me, that augurs that Christine Lagarde and company may be better off listening to the markets tomorrow. Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Joining me now on set to make sense of this market action, I'm pleased to have such a big group here. Andy Capron is uh, Region Atlantic Private Wealth Co-CIO. Nancy Tangler, CEO and CIO at Laffer Tangler Investments. Peter Bookvar, Bleakley Financial Group CIO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to all of you. And of course, our own Steve Leisman is here uh, sort of in spirit as well. And Steve, if I may, let's, let's kick things off with you and bring us up to speed on what the market is now pricing in for the Fed, which decision is due out a week from today. Yeah, uh, I think I'm overusing the word dramatic, uh, Kelly, but I still think it fits here. A dramatic change in the outlook for the Fed, uh, even after a more dramatic, uh, an equally dramatic uh, move earlier this week. Take a look here now where we look, where we see for the March FOMC rate hike probabilities. We are now at 59% of no change, uh, 41% for a 25 basis point hike. It had been the reverse, or they even been earlier looking at a 50. Take a look at the outlook for the peak rate here. A week ago Wednesday, we were at 570, 100 basis points off of that. Uh, for the May contract, is now 476. Here's the broader Fed outlook. You can see they're still toying with this idea that there is something of a hike uh, coming. Uh, and that's, you see that in the April contract at 476. But then look at the cuts that are baked in for the rest of the year, all the way down quite a bit into the threes there. And then one last chart I believe we have, which is the ECB rate hike probabilities picking up on what Rick was saying. This is calculated by Refinitiv, 85% now for a 25 basis point cut, uh, hike, sorry, uh, and uh, uh, 15% for a 50. It had been oh, virtually 100% for a 50 before we had issues of the European banking system. Kelly? All right. So I turn to all of you, Peter. I'll just uh, pick things up here. What's the significance of credit? So this was a no-known. Obviously, I mean, we're going back to before SVB's collapse when they had to pause their, uh, I think, financials, trying to wait on approval from regulators. The issues are myriad and go back years. Um, why the reaction in markets today? Well, Credit Suisse has been a slow-moving car crash, it seems like, for the last couple of years. And it's strange that what triggered it was not news or an announcement from Credit Suisse. It was just the, uh, the Saudis saying, OK, we're done at 10 percent. We're not going to increase that. But in the context of the fragility of all these financial institutions, obviously triggered that. But at the end of the day, the Swiss government is probably going to back first. Uh, I was about to say first Boston, <laughs> right. but Credit Suisse. <laughs> but I, I, and I think that we have to sort of separate it the viability of these banks, European and the U.S., versus, which I don't think is in question, and I don't think depositors need to worry, but what's the profit outlook? What's the loan outlook going to be? What kind of equity raises are these banks going to have to do that's going to dilute shareholders, yeah. but at least save their banks? And what kind of duration risks are now going to get fully exposed? 
there is no way you can think <coughs> the economy is going to grow as, today as much as you thought a week ago. I, you know, and Goldman, Nancy, tried to put some numbers to this, estimating, okay, if uh, the affected banks pull back 70%, the other small banks only pull back 15% on loans, maybe you only have a quarter point drag to GDP. It seems pretty conservative. I mean, this is starting to feel like a faster, slow motion credit crunch. Totally. I think what, what we know is that bank lending standards have already tightened. And we, we also know that um, small businesses are pressed. And so the question is going to become, what happens? Well, I run a small business. What happens? You lay off employees. And so I think long term, this gets us where we need to go. It has an impact on inflation that will be disinflationary ultimately. But in the meantime, uh, it's, it's going to be very important to know what you own, to know the management teams. I mean, what happened at at Silicon Valley Bank was a rookie error, a basic banking 101, match your assets and your liabilities. They didn't. And they are, in a, in a sense, getting a do-over for their, uh, for their depositors, which is good news for the depositors. And that will help keep payrolls going in, sure. in Silicon Valley. But I think it's, it, we thought we would see a recession this year. We've said that consistently. I think now we know that we're going to see a recession. And the question is, what is the Fed going to do about it Right. And, week? and Peter, I'm reminded it was just a week or two ago we were sitting here and talking about how those rate hikes hadn't fully been felt by the economy yet and they were metastasizing. And here we now see more evidence of that. So should the Fed cut with inflation at 6%? Because I, we can check the break-evens, for instance. It's not like you see them taking off because we're now pricing in a pause. Mm -hmm. We're not pricing in a pause and seeing the market go, oh, you know what, we're going to take the break-evens up to 3 or 4% next year. They're still probably below 2.5%, 2.3%, maybe they're even down towards 2 Yeah, the, the five-year break-even, last time I checked, was about 2.30 today. Here it is, uh, yeah. But they're, they're not going to go from raising to immediately cutting. They're, they should, from a risk management standpoint, they should be doing nothing next week. Right. Now, I, I know symbolically, they may, may feel from an institutional standpoint, hey, we're, we've been talking so tough in inflation, we've got to throw one more out there. But from a risk management standpoint, they should stop. Yeah. Now, shifting to the, the decline in interest rates, well, that's a tougher pull for them because of this rate of inflation that, yes, will st we'll still continue to moderate. But this is different this time in the sense of the Fed's ability to address an economic and a credit or a banking challenge right. with just let's just cut back to zero and start doing QE again. Right, right. That, 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 those tools have been taken away from them with inflation where it's at. Andy, jump in here. Sure. So I think what's happening today is the market's responding to the Fed's job getting done by something else. Hmm. The Fed's job used to be hike rates until inflation drops to a more manageable level. Right. Now the, there's a potential banking crisis brewing that could do the Fed's job for it. Absolutely. And that gives the Fed cover to pause and eventually and eventually start to cut but rates. They, it's odd because you're right. They're doing the job for the Fed, and yet the Fed almost doesn't want to acknowledge it. They want to say, no, 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 we're, we're still going to hike. I mean, people are talking about the, the precedent in England where it's, if there's a blow, oh, pension system's going to blow up, we can provide liquidity and keep hiking. Does that seem like a reasonable template for what the Fed should be doing now? I think central banks have covered hike rates until something breaks. Um, something broke in England last fall. Something broke in the U.S. last week with, yeah. with a major bank failure. Um, I think that gives the Fed a lot less cover to continue to hike. But I think something more important is happening, which is that the economic outlook has materially changed. The Fed used to push on interest rates, trying to get interest rates to do the hard work of getting the economy to cool off a little bit, getting inflation back under control. Now the banking sector is likely to do that. Regional banks are super important to extending credit to small and, and mid-sized businesses. Absolutely. Those are super important to the employment outlook. And now what banks are likely to do 
given the warning shot that they've just seen, is pull back on their lending to, to, to small and mid-sized businesses, which is going to do a lot of the hard work economically for oh, the yeah. Fed. Oh, yeah. And Netta Markowska, Jeffries, has put great numbers to this, but something like, you know, 70, 80 percent of all the job openings, 90 percent of the excess since the pandemic are all at small and new businesses because we had this huge uh, surge of creation. So let me bring it back to investors. What do people do? Uh, Nancy, I'll start with you. Stocks, bonds, gold. I mean, Kat, what, what, is, the, what is the move now? Well, so we were already positioning our clients for a recession. So we moved them into short ladders uh, last summer, and we did that at the expense of some of um, convertible securities that had a little more volatility. But then in our equity strategies, we've, we've added risk because what we know is that coming out the other side of this, and that includes technology and consumer discretionary, those are the areas that you want to be invested in. And then lastly, we run a clean energy strategy that invests in commodities. We were in this morning buying uh, some of the, the energy, the, the upstream names, sure. which it's hedged with oil and copper. And uh, we, we added to uh, platinum and, and um, lithium, I think. So these are so, buying, they're creating long-term buying opportunities Yeah, I mean, you? volatility is a friend of the long-term investor. So if your horizon is more than three weeks and ours is about three to five years, this gives us an opportunity to pick off names. We were adding, as you know, to technology in the fourth quarter. I mean, the Nasdaq's still up 8% year to date. So we're pretty happy with that trade. We added the high quality names, not the no earnings names. And that's the way we continue to, to plot along. And that raises, Peter, a question for many people, which is, OK, so if we're going into recession, if uh, this is or will continue to be or have another leg down in the bear market, I mean, when should people expect stocks to bottom? Well, the problem that stocks have is that they're still expensive. If you look at the price to sales ratio, we're not that far from where we were in 2000. Uh, even price to earnings are still relatively elevated. And I think earnings are going to start, oh, well, I should say, they've already started to fall. They're going to continue to fall. So the, that's the problem that the markets have. There's no valuation cushion to them. So if you're going to buy stocks today, which we do own, you've got to extend out that time horizon. Yeah. And I think also what I'm watching is what the dollar is going to do now. Because mm -hmm. the dollar bull case was Fed's raising interest rates faster than everybody else. And that's what drove the 17% rally from January through October of last year. And outside of today's bounce on a flight to safety thing, I think the dollar is going to start having some issues. Hmm. And maybe the gold rally. Good for U.S. stocks. Absolutely. Very, yeah, we've been very well. We've been very bullish on gold. I remain so, which would benefit. But I think it'll be international stocks that do better than U.S. stocks on a weakening dollar. OK, I was just going to ask. And by the way, a lot of traders have been putting on the gold uh, 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 copper trade which, you know, they're riding one way with copper, now they're riding the other way with gold. But I did want to circle back. So you, because I remember we were talking earlier, uh, maybe in the year, about attractiveness of European stocks. And I was going to ask if that's out the window now, but you say not so fast because the dollar could weaken and support them. I, I particularly like the Asian markets much more. I think that's where a lot of the economic growth is going to take place over the next 10 years. I think the China reopening is going to be very important and very big for that region of the world. And even Europe will benefit from that. Well, while the U.S. is going to be not as affected positively by that and have its own, has its own challenges. Andy, what about you? Sure. So I think a bear market plays out in three acts. One is valuations come down as a result of investors getting a little bit more skittish. Then a crisis happens and then fundamentals bottom. We're somewhere around the second act today. Um, and I think where markets tend to turn around is between the second and third acts. Mm -hmm. We're watching a crisis unfold. 
I think fundamentals are going to start to bottom sometime later this year, and that could be an opportunity for investors to load up. In the meantime, what I think investors ought to do is look to position stock portfolios a little bit more conservatively. What does that mean? I'm look sure to- they're kicking themselves now. <laughs> Although to Nancy's point, I mean, yeah. technology and the NASDAQ are the ones kind of holding up right now, relatively speaking. So, so that is one area to, to consider at least getting to benchmark, because that's something a lot of investors underweighted. The other area is consumer staples. Consumer staples, in my opinion, had a really good year last year because they did a really good job passing through high input costs into higher prices. Those prices tend to be sticky. So just because the economy starts to pull back, just because price pressures pull off a little bit, they're not likely to have to cut their prices quite so much. And finally, before we go, any comment on energy, which is just absolutely falling apart here. Sure. So I, I agree that the direction of the move in oil prices today ought to be lower. I feel like that is a very large move in a structurally undersupplied market, especially given China's reopening. Right. So you're with everyone makes that case, though. I mean, who would have thought that from the date, Peter, we even started talking about China's reopening energy prices are down, what, 20 percent since then? Yeah. And we're long, so it's not a good day for us. But I do think over the next couple of years, uh, the demand for oil is going to exceed its supply. And China in 2023 is going to exceed uh, its pre-COVID level of oil consumption that I think is going to create some level of support. Quick final comment, Nancy, as well. Consumer discretionary. We got the retail sales report this morning. Is there a sense that the financial markets are seizing up, but that the consumer broadly is okay, Or is it the other way around? Did the consumer start to seize up first just in a slower, more under the radar kind of way? Well, a lot of those numbers got revised. And so um, I think it matters, again, which which industry you're you're participating in within consumer discretionary. But the consumer, you know, I I know they they keep being (laughs) buried prematurely. They're still pretty healthy. And even if you look at balance sheets, or income statements or asset values, they're still well, well ahead of where they were pre-pandemic. People are working now that inflation is coming down. And I think the, the revision to last month's PPI numbers was critical mm. um, as a leading indicator of what mm-hmm. we expect to see from inflation. Real wages will begin to go up instead of contracting. And I think that's going to be at the margin um, at least decent sure. for retailers. And listen, it's a major difference from the 06 when people were way over leveraged, household right. debt levels were exploding and people were much more fragile. It's going to, you have to wonder how, what kind of cushion that does uh, provide this right. time around. Stocks, by the way, real quick, before we go, that you um, stick with in that. that oh, arena. in consumer discretionary? Yeah. Uh, so, so we've been adding to Target mm-hmm. and I know that feels a little bit counterintuitive, but this has been a good place to, we owned it and then we've added to it. We've also added to um, some of the cons- discretionary slash staples names like McDonald's, but we've been taking the money out of staples because we think the valuations are a little bit stretched and mm-hmm. we were way overweighted. So uh, Chipotle is one of our favorite names that we added to recently and we just keep picking away at them. These aren't big moves. You know, we own Tesla. Right. Um, even with the pullback, we're still pretty happy with where we acquired it. And so we'll add to it. And those are some of the names that, that we do like going into the next phase. And Dow's only down 550 at this point. So yeah, it's things, a rally. Things are turning around. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming in today. Andy Capra and Nancy Tangler and Peter Bookvar. We were just talking about housing and the consumer. Mortgage rates are on the move to the downside, I would imagine. Let's get to Diana Olick with the latest numbers. Diana. And Kelly, you imagine, right? This should come as no surprise given the drop in the 10-year yield, which mortgage rates loosely follow. The average rate on the 30-year fix fell 20 basis points this morning to 6.55%. That is the lowest rate since the middle of February. And you can see what a roller coaster the last week has been with the rate jumping over 7% last 
Wednesday, all according to Mortgage News Daily. Now, a lot of folks have been asking what this banking stress means to mortgage lending and to the independent mortgage banks. Well, there is currently nothing wrong with the credit quality of outstanding mortgages. In fact, it is excellent today due to tighter underwriting and the fact that record low rates in the first two years of the pandemic had everyone refinancing into 30-year fixed rate loans. But the one area this could impact is credit availability for future loans, not necessarily the so-called conforming Fannie and Freddie loans or FHA, but jumbo loans that go into bank portfolios. And a bigger impact is going to be for home builders and their ability to get construction loans. And Kelly, we're going to talk about that in the next half hour. Absolutely. For now, Diana, thank you. BlackRock Chief Larry Fink warning of a, quote, slow rolling crisis for the U.S. financial system in the wake of Silicon Valley's bank collapse. In his annual letter to investors and chief executives, Fink wrote, we don't know yet whether the consequences of easy money and regulatory changes will cascade throughout the U.S. regional banking sector with more seizures and shutdowns coming. My next guest, though, disagrees when it comes to SVB's failure. He says it was largely self-inflicted and not emblematic of broader banking system issues. For more, let's welcome in Jesse Rosenthal. He's senior analyst and head of U.S. financials at Credit Sites. Our own Mike Santoli joins as well, and it's good to have you both here. Jesse, I'll start with you because you were sort of early or and or accurate to point out some problems with SVB. So I'm all the more interested to know why you don't think this is a broader indictment of the regional banks here. Yeah, well, I think it's important to kind of uh, segregate between a liquidity crunch crisis, which is what's gripping the fear of the markets right now, and what actually happened with SVB, which ultimately ended up being a solvency problem. And so big picture, the solvency problem with SVB lied in an accounting quirk with the securities they were holding. Basically, they were holding a bunch of underwater, but very importantly, zero risk assets. U.S. government treasuries, agency, MBS, that if you marked it to market, wiped out the entire book equity of the bank. They are quite literally the only bank in the U.S. that was in that position. But so what are we to make then of this number that $630 billion, Jesse, uh, would be the whole if we had the entire banking system kind of marking the similarly to market? First of all, that does not drive insolvency, right? The, the banking system has so much more capital than, than it had 10, 15 years ago that they can actually absorb those marks, unlike uh, Silicon Valley Bank. So, so the system would still have excess uh, equity capital. Secondly, and this is where the liquidity comes in, if they don't have to sell it, then they can just hold on. And this is the liquidity component, because again, we know exactly what these assets are worth. And more specifically, we know exactly you will get a hundred cents at par if you can wait till repayment. And I would add, this is also where the Fed's facility on Sunday night cannot be understated because they now give the ability to take these underwater securities, go to the Fed and get a hundred cents on the dollar without ever actually having to sell them and right. take the write down. And, and yet, Mike, we've still seen the banks trading like under significant amount of pressure. Why do you think that is? Well, yeah, I would grant that uh, SVB seemed an extreme uh, to the point of, of being an outlier, but it still reflected the potential pressures on other banks, not so much for an immediate liquidity crisis, but what drives behavior changes. It's just kind of a, a second look at our exposures, where we have duration, uh, what the losses are, the whole what-if scenario, and the pulling of deposits from smaller banks that need them more than the bigger banks it's going to. I think that's 
in a macro sense, to me, what matters more uh, and why I don't really think we're talking about some kind of uncontrolled chain reaction uh, in terms of deposit flight from the system that's going to weaken it. Uh, by the way, that $600 billion loss is a lot smaller now than it was when people took that snapshot, given the rally in bonds. So I think you've had a little bit of wiggle room created here. But I don't know what it means for the credit impulse in the economy. I don't know what it means for the smaller banks in terms of their risk appetites. And that, to me, is uh, is coloring the view of economic growth, sure. uh, even if you can set aside SVB as a particular case in terms of its stress. The other thing, Jesse, is that if you took a snapshot of the banks prior to the SVB issue, and I can understand your point that they wouldn't necessarily have to make these four sales, but now in an era of deposit flight, has, uh, do we know yet? I mean, the extent to which deposits have changed hands and then forced institutions to have to react uh, just like they did in SVB's case. Yeah, we dumped it. And, and, you know, that is, I will acknowledge, sort of the tricky component here. And I think why the Fed moved so quickly over the weekend, you know, bank liquidity crises, you do not want to fool around with because the situation can change extremely quickly. You know, Silicon Valley Bank is, is a perfect example here. 25% of their depositors at least tried to get out the door on Thursday alone. Um, the reality is the way banks work, and I would urge everyone to go back and rewatch uh, 80 years ago, It's a Wonderful Life. The reality is that almost no bank can withstand that type of bank run. Um, definitionally is not how the industry works, uh, but more broadly speaking, there's still a lot of cash. There's still a lot of already marked securities to be able to absorb it. And, and I agree with the prior point that I think it's much, much more likely that we're seeing deposit migration up the size scale in banks rather than a broader liquidity crisis for the system. Would you, Jesse, put any other banks uh, in your crosshairs now, or do you think that that is a, a waste of time exercise? I don't think it's a waste of time exercise, but one of the one of our kind of theses here is that the more and more we can prove out Silicon Valley as an extreme outlier, um, and it is in virtually every single case, I think the more and more we should get comfortable with how the rest of the banks are sitting. You know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, like I said, was a series of missteps starting with an egregious asset liability mismanagement. Um, and, and duration mismatch that does not exist at other banks. And that largely comes down to the vagaries of their deposit base, which yeah. is extremely highly correlated. Um, and that's just not the case with the rest of the system. Let me just end, Mike, with your uh, kind of um, reading the tea leaves, reading the charts, shall we say. Now that these declines are in the books, now that the S&P is barely positive on the year, where does that leave us? Uh, it leaves us, well, first of all, I, I view the last 10 months as being this really wide, messy trading range. Uh, at the lower end of the range, you've kind of been pricing in, obviously, much higher odds of recession. And that's back where we are, more or less. I don't think we have principally a valuation problem. We have a where are earnings going to go problem. The equal-weighted S&P is actually not at an extreme valuation. Uh, so right now, it's much more the bond market volatility that's causing everybody to question whatever thesis they had. We went from fire to ice in terms of what we're afraid of so fast without stopping in the middle for a warm bath. That's what I think the market is spooked by. So far, we're holding the lower end of, the, of even Monday's lows. So, uh, you know, we'll see if, if uh, you know, or Europe closing was a little bit of, uh, of a breather for the sellers here. True. From fire to ice with no warm bath in between. <laughs> Thank you both. <laughs> uh, great to have you today. Mike Santoli and Jesse Rosenthal. Still ahead, the sell-off in European markets Mike was just referencing is expected to have some sizable spillover effects on U.S. companies.
doing business there. We'll look at the multinationals that are potentially most at risk. And as we head to break, take a look at the sectors today because it's not just the banks. Energy is actually the worst group, down almost 6%. Financials uh, aren't even doing worse than the materials right now. The material stock's down about 4%. Utilities, communication services are leading the way. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. Energy, the worst sector today as oil broke below $66 a barrel. Let's get to Pippa Stevens for a check on these big movers. And what's the buzz about this, Pippa? Yeah, Kelly, falling to the lowest level going back to December 2021. Absolutely getting crushed here with spillover effects from the turmoil in banks, which is driving a broad risk-off day. In addition to global growth concerns, there's also the stronger dollar, a well-supplied market for at least the first half of the year, and another build in U.S. crude stockpiles. Trading activity also playing a part with UBS pointing to Delta hedging as increasing today's volatility. Put simply, institutions are selling crude futures in order to avoid downside risk. Now, energy is by far the worst performing S&P sector, with the services names leading the declines. Halliburton, the biggest loser, with SLB also sharply lower. Upstream players like Marathon Oil, Devon, and APA Kelly also taking a hit. Wow, look at Halliburton down almost 10%. Thank you for flagging that, Pippa, Pippa Stevens. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Good afternoon, everyone. An exiled Chinese billionaire scheduled to appear before a judge in New York today accused of orchestrating a billion-dollar fraud. The government says Guo Wengi was arrested this morning. He and another defendant, who remains at large, are charged with raising money from Guo's online followers by promising them big returns. Instead, according to the indictment unsealed today, he lined his pockets with the money he stole, buying a mansion, a yacht, and even two $36,000 mattresses. Guo is a business associate of Steve Bannon, who was a top advisor to former President Trump. The state of Texas is taking control of Houston's public school district, which serves nearly 200,000 students, citing allegations of misconduct by school trustees and low test scores. Democrats say it's simply a political power grab. And near the top of a 56-story tall building in Dubai, the pilot of a small plane pulled off a spectacular stunt, landing on a helipad with only 68 feet of runway. The Polish air racing champion has been preparing for today since 2021, making 650 test landings on short runways around the world. 
Kelly, back to you. It still gives me the jitters. <laughs> Tyler, thanks. We'll see you soon. Coming up, shares of Credit Suisse hitting a record low below $2 a share. It's just uh, it's back below that level now, down 21%. Its inability to raise capital renewing fears of a banking crisis. Should U.S. investors fear the turmoil? One strategist says no. He'll tell us why next. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Eurostoxx Bank Index has fallen 10% this week on pace for its worst week in nearly three years. Let's talk about what it means for your money with Jeff Kleintop. He's chief global investment strategist at Charles Schwab and David Katz, who's chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Welcome to both of you. And Jeff, remember we were talking about Europe earlier this year. Um, What's your take on the situation there and uh, how much it worsens or doesn't worsen the outlook for the U.S. economy and banks? Well, certainly, uh, despite the sell-off today, it's important to note that the MSCI Europe Financials Index, measuring Europe's banks, is down just 1% year-to-date. That's through today, while the S&P 500 Financials Index is down 9%. Eurozone commercial banks have been able to increase their lending rates more than their deposit rates thanks to very cheap funding under the TLTRO program from the ECB. And as a result, uh, literally, uh, European banks have never been more profitable and never been better capitalized. And that's showing up in the relative performance despite today's worries. I think concerns about a global financial crisis deepening the current earnings and economic downturn is valid. And we'll need to watch that very carefully, watching things like oil prices and repo rates and, and CDS. But I think the biggest concern still for me is inflation and central bank rate hikes. I think we're going to get more of that from uh, the European Central Bank tomorrow. And I think the market may soon pivot back to that and away from fears about a financial crisis. So not to go too far uh, you know, into this, but I'm curious because you mentioned it, would we have been better off if our structure had something more like the TLTROs Uh, Their targeted longer-term refinancing operations is always an acronym in Europe. Uh, But are they getting the last laugh here because of this scheme and the way that it was set up? I think so. I, you know, a lot of times uh, we're, we look at Europe and say, oh, they're doing too much. They're, 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 there's too much bailouts uh, for their banking system. But in situations like this, it really does pay off. And, that's and look one of the at the bailout now. Seeing- I mean, if you compare it, you say, OK, wow, geez, the European Central Bank keeps coming up with these schemes. Well, what did we just do? We just backstopped. I mean, either we have a three-tier banking system or we've backstopped a significant portion of deposits in this country. And we have to figure out what we're going to do uh, scheme-wise now. Yeah, exactly. I don't think the Fed has had a plan in place or, or, or the FDIC or the Treasury to really deal with this. And they need to put one in place because now they're faced with this difficult question of do we do we look towards financial stability concerns and not hike rates or, or do we get back to, you know, to addressing true financial stability? It, it, it's a real problem. The ECB has the ability to raise rates and still provide a backstop to the banking system. I think we're going to see that tomorrow. All right, David, let's bring you in here uh, with your own view on U.S. financials. What are your thoughts? What are the investments, if any, that you're making as you watch the events of the last five days unfold? I think the best thing that investors can do if you have a sound portfolio is not get caught up in the day-to-day volatility or or concerns. Look at a 9- to 12-month time horizon. We think this crisis is ultimately going to pass, and we do think that it's going to be a 
good year for stocks once we get through this. So in, in terms of the financial crisis, we think the Fed, the FDIC, the Treasury stepped up in a very meaningful way and really put a lot of things in place to have this thing settle down. It's not going to settle down today. It's not settling down this week, but it is going to settle down this month if that's the case. We think that it's going to be a better environment for the overall market on a 12-month basis. And we do think the Fed can slow down and, in fact, stop raising rates at this point. At a minimum, they will pause because we think inflation has been coming down. This is going to be deflationary. And we think the Fed's primary focus right now is stability to the financial markets. And by the time the financial markets have settled down, we think inflation is going to be continuing to trend lower. What do you own now, David, that might have changed uh, or, or, or that you think sets you up for the kind of year that you foresee with everything going on uh, that we're just talking about? So we have a pretty diversified portfolio. As, as you know from our discussions uh, over the last few months, we do like financials and we do have a lot of financials. Our outlook on financials on a 12-month basis is positive. However, it definitely has more risk than we had thought uh, and it is going to take a little bit longer and the upside is, is more limited. Beyond the financials, we do like technology. We do like industrials. Uh, we do like some healthcare. So we'd stick to diversified portfolios. Utilities, which have been doing pretty poorly this year, we think in a an interest rate environment where the Fed is going to stop being as hawkish should have a nice rebound. So there are lots of places to make money out there this year in terms of financials, focus on the best financials, highest credit quality. Uh, we don't think you want to chase yield with lower quality financials uh, because we think you're going to make money in the bigger ones without significant risk or as significant a risk. Yeah. And Jeff, do you want to just comment there? And um what, what would cut you? So I, I feel like there's this view right now that, um, you know, we had a scary couple of days, but we got through it and now we can kind of go back to business as usual. What if we don't, Jeff? Yeah, I think this is a wake up call for your portfolio. If you've been taking on too much risk, especially in high beta parts of the market, it's not too late to shift to a quality focus. The stock market's likely to remain volatile this year. I'd point out that in every one, nearly, I think, nine of the last 10 months, we've seen the stock market move up or down by five percentage points. These are big moves. It's likely to continue. I think you want to focus on quality stocks. We've defined quality characteristics a few ways, but one way is low price to cash flow, what I call short duration stocks, essentially companies with more immediate cash flows than those out in the distant future. Those outperformed last year when the market was falling and in the fourth quarter when it rebounded. They've been outperforming in recent days as well. The easiest to find them is just use that free low price price-to-cash-flow screen to sort stocks. The lower the price-to-cash-flow, the higher the quality and the better performance. I think you'll see not only so far this year, but I think the remainder of the year as well. David, you would agree with that? And are you still buying tech here? Uh, we are buying tech. And again, we're talking about quality tech. Companies like Amazon and Google and Qualcomm and PayPal are all selling at pretty reasonable valuations. Uh, also, like an APD, uh, you know, quality company, Union Pacific has gotten beaten up. Quality company, lower PE. That's the type of thing we focus on. Uh, we agree with your guests. We would not be more speculative, but we think you can buy quality companies, low valuations, and make pretty good money this year. All right, gentlemen. Thank you. Jeff Kleintop and David Katz. Uh, speaking of trying to stay bullish here, the fallout from Europe could have big implications for U.S. companies from everything from retail to industrial. It's not just the European and U.S. banks we're watching. Let's get to Seema Modi with a look at the companies most exposed over there. Seema? 
Kelly, concern around Europe's growth story really came to light this earnings season. McDonald's saying our base case is for a mild to moderate recession in the U.S. and one that will be a little deeper and longer in Europe. And it added that it's being judicious with pricing of menu items, a fast food giant, along with PVH and eBay, make about 40 percent or more of their sales in Europe. That's according to Wolf Research. Holdings among the highest exposure in the S&P 500, that's booking holdings with 55 percent of sales derived there and it's been a go-to market for travel and hospitality names post-pandemic as more Americans travel overseas. For the industrials, Melius Research says Europe's been sort of this low-growth, high-cost region with some secular growth areas like electric vehicles, renewables, and farm equipment. Speaking of farm equipment, Agco has a sizable footprint in the EU, accounting for over half of its total sales. And John Deere recently sharing that while grain prices have come off peak levels, input costs have also declined, and that's keeping margins in Europe at supportive levels. But that's certainly not stopping these stocks from moving lower today, Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Honeywell down almost 4%. Seema, thanks. Coming up, we will go back to tech. Lower today, but higher since Monday, as investors hope for a Fed pause. A key supplier, though, just warning about demand. We'll get the fallout next. Welcome back. Time for today's tech check. Dow's down 560 points. The Nasdaq is actually the best performer today, down less than a percent. This after Foxconn reported a 10 percent dip in fourth quarter profits and said it would ramp up investments outside of China and consumer demand is slowing. How big a red flag is that for consumer tech and oh, maybe Apple? Steve Kovac is here to discuss. Was this a surprise, Steve? Not really, because Apple actually had very similar warnings that we just got from Foxconn. I remember, Kelly, last fall was when those shutdowns in China really impacted the iPhone production, their ability to meet the targets that they wanted to meet, specifically in Zhengzhou, which is where the Foxconn facility, the so-called iPhone city is, where most of those uh, iPhone pros that didn't make it out in time for Christmas were supposed to be made. So what Foxconn is saying is very similar to what Tim Cook and Luca Maestri, the CFO, said on their earnings call, which is, look, you know, it's going to improve quarter over quarter our sales, our iPhone sales, because we got that facility back up to production. But it's year over year, sales are going to be down. And also just overall, the consumer demand picture that Foxconn said, we've heard this before from other companies. I'll point to Microsoft as the best example. Windows revenue fell 39% in that same quarter. PC demand is falling. Smartphone demand is falling. Even Apple's not immune. Yeah, no, we uh, we had a boom. We had too much of everything, yeah. and now it's unwinding. Would you say, though, that other tech companies seem like they're hit harder in terms of layoffs and right-sizing? Is it that they, other companies expanded more and are now downsizing more? Or is Apple seeing perhaps higher, just put it in context. Yeah, right? well, Apple, Apple's not downsizing, that's for sure. But, right. And in fact, they put out in one of their disclosures that they're going to increase their spending on suppliers. That's Foxconn, that's many others. Now, that could be because of a lot of things, but it could also be they expect some you know, improvement in the back half of the year from other products and the iPhones. So, look, they're not necessarily downsizing. And in fact, for the full year, their uh, analysts are expecting, you know, very modest revenue growth that Apple can ho- think or many hope that Apple can beat at least. So you don't think they're going to there's like a uh, I don't want to keep using the expression shoot a drop. Yeah. yeah. Um, but is there an expectation that they were able to kind of meet the higher demand during the pandemic without having to over expand? Or was it just all happening on more of the Foxconn piece of this? It's, it's more the Foxconn piece. And, and look, I this is one of my first questions to Tim Cook and the last earnings was, you know, are you guys back up? to capacity yet. 
And he kind of gave this interesting answer saying, we're back up to capacity to what we need to meet, meaning, mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's not full 100 percent capacity at, at, the, at iPhone City, but we are able to meet the demand we have right now, which is, you know, technically going to be lower. All right, Steve, thank you. We thank appreciate you. it. Steve Kovac. Still ahead, the Vanguard real estate ETF down 9 percent over the past month. Is commercial real estate the next big bank balance sheet problem? We'll discuss that next on The Exchange. Welcome back, everybody. Rates getting hit in today's sell-off, as you can see there. Small declines, but it's one area where banks have already been pulling back on commercial lending activity. Will the concerns cause loans to dry up even further now? Diana Olick is here with the story. Diana. Well, Kelly, the short answer is yes, and liquidity isn't the only impact. I spoke with Willie Walker of Walker & Dunlop. That's the largest multifamily lender in the nation. They also lend some on office and retail. He said every single regional and local bank across the country is now assessing their loan assets and liabilities, and as a result, they're going to be more discerning about extending credit to commercial real estate, which will suck liquidity out of the system. In addition, commercial developers, he said, who largely use regional banks and depend on those relationships are in a conundrum. One of the things that many of our clients have been struggling with, Diana, over the last week is I work with PacWest. I work with First Republic. My relationship is with them. I'm wondering whether I ought to move my deposits away from them. And if they move them, they lose the relationship. The other thing is those deposits are tied to new loans or existing loans. And this is not just for commercial developers, but the home builders as well. In the Builder Sentiment report out this morning, NAHB's chief economist Rob Dietz said a follow-on effect of the pressure on regional banks as well as continued Fed tightening will be further constraints for acquisition, development, and construction loans for builders. And of course, when loan conditions are tight, lot supply constricts, builders don't build houses, and home prices, where do they go, Kelly? Right. Well, exactly. So I'm curious as well, Diana, before we let you go, if there's been any knock on from what's happened with the regional banks. So those problems hitting uh, uh, home builders at all? Well, there's great concern. And in fact, Stuart Miller, the chairman of Lennar, Lennar beat in their earnings report late yesterday. But he came on with analysts today and he said that he's very concerned. He knows how important regional banks are to the housing sector. He said the landscape is going to shift. We're not going to be able to see around the corners. And he said our focus is going to be taking into account the unexpected, staying close to the market on a community basis, keeping production moving. But he said that will impact both prices and margins. Kelly. Hmm. All right, Diana, thank you, Diana Olick. With commercial real estate lending drying up, are we having or about to have a credit crunch there? What role could private creditors play in this environment as well? Joining me now is Ron Eliasov. He's founder and managing partner at Northwind Group, a private equity firm with $3 billion under management that invests in both commercial and residential. Uh, Ron, it's good to have you. You're also a customer of Signature Bank. Or I guess you were or are you still? Or? Still are. Still are. Do, what are you hearing? Do you have access to your funds? We do. Uh, we, we started hearing, hearing rumors Friday that there might be issues, so we acted fast and we actually uh, pulled most of our capital out there. The bankers at Signature on the phone told us, listen, we know as much as you do right now. Sure. And our response was, was okay, it's better to be safe than sorry. We moved it to other banks we have relationships with. They were back in the office on Monday. We had access to all the um, capital call lines. Uh, with Signature. With Signature. So they're back in business. Obviously, we're taking a more cautious approach. Uh, we're hoping they will be truly back in business on the longer horizon and we'll be happy to stay a long-term client of the bank. There's great people there. But right now, 
you got to be careful. I mean, you're in the middle of like so many different hurricanes right now. I don't even know where to start. Let me kind of throw it back to you, actually. So you've been in the middle of the banking problems with Signature. Your firm focuses on commercial and residential real estate, both of which, you know, remain under pressure. What keeps you up at night or do you see this as, as some kind of opportunistic environment to be in? Uh, we see it. I see it as kind of the golden age for uh, private lenders like ours. We're a closed-end debt fund. We provide first mortgage loans predominantly on residential commercial properties, mostly in New York, so a lot of multifamily, a lot of condo buildings. And, you know, we look at it case by case, deal by deal. And right now, I have to say, the New York residential market looks pretty resilient. Because oh, it's everyone's depending on it. You have a rents at all-time highs, basically, even with the biggest um, number of apartments coming online in, in, it sounds like, decades. Does that worry you at all? We, we actually see the supply glut that everybody spoke about pre-COVID. That has evaporated. Right now, there is a shortage of supply. No one has really built a new product in the city in the last three years. Everything you're seeing coming online right now is projects that, that started pre-pandemic and are just finishing in. So we're actually providing the capital for those projects to be able to get to the finish line. Would you be sold. involved in any office conversions or could that, you know, people talk about it like that's the answer here, but it's also very difficult to do and will probably take some time. It's, it's, it's complicated. It's more complicated than people think to convert an office building to resi. We, we have looked at a few of those. We haven't transacted on them yet. It has to be at a certain basis for it to make sense, and the layout really needs to work. But that's going to be definitely a trend. We know of about 6 million square feet of office building right now in Manhattan that's wow. going to get converted. It will take them probably three years to get to the finish line. So the supply shortage will not get fixed immediately by those projects. Do you feel good about the return on investment you're probably going to have for the next couple of years? Because getting to this point, Everything sounds great. From here on out, things look really dicey in terms of the economy, in terms of where rents might go if we do have a recession and all of that. How do you, you know, confidently invest here? So you have to underwrite the sponsor ability to cover the loan and the cover rate increases. Um, you have to underwrite the property itself and the liquidity of that specific asset. So when you look at New York residential, it's much more liquid than real estate properties in other parts of the country. Um, listen, right now, banks are pulling back, pulling back in a major way. We are stepping into loans and type of sponsors that typically would get a loan from a large commercial bank. It's a huge opportunity for you, but I can't, I mean, is there, are there enough of you to make up for that loss of, of funding from the banks? No, there's not. Uh, there's a lot of debt funds, a lot of debt funds that have raised significant capital, but definitely in order for the market to be robust, you need the commercial banks back in the game. Uh, it's going to be a very interesting year. Uh, I think that right now we're seeing spreads increase, meaning we're getting more returns on our loans, and we actually reduced our, our loan-to-values, meaning if, if a year ago we, we typically land at 65% loan-to-value, this year we're more at 55%. And if, if last year it was more second-tier developers, this year it's top-tier sponsors and assets. So higher quality, more return, but bigger systemic risk that you have to mitigate. To be worried about, absolutely. Well, when people wonder, you know, how are we keeping things going right now? You're a prime example of that. Uh, Ron, thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it today. Pleasure. Ron Eliasif with Northwind. That does it for us today, everybody. But coming up on Power Lunch, we'll continue the coverage of today's sell-off and talk to Valley National Bank CEO Ira Robbins. Dow's down 500. Tyler's getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, 
No one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.